back, lovely listeners, to part one with Dr. Halo Goldberg, Instagram handle, the Hypermobility Cairo, or the Hypermobile Cairo. This episode split into two parts. This is part one, talking everything hypermobility, connective tissue disorders, Ellis Danlos syndrome. Great episode. If you want to get straight to it, skip to 23 minutes in. If you want to listen to Kelly and I introduce a couple of new segments, Injury of the Week, Instagram questionable social media content of the week and person to follow post of the week. Listen all the way through and we'll speak to you all next week. Welcome to another episode, number 85 we are up to, 15 episodes away from the big triple digit. Yeah, man, I'd love to be able to get it. A giveaway, something really cool. Maybe like a, a subscription to the Patreon. A, yeah, I was gonna say like to something maybe a little bit cooler, like Clinico, or maybe a free pair of shoes, something health related. Where I mean, are we getting those from? I don't know. Hopefully, the CEO of Clinico is listening to this. Mm. But anyway, it's been a long time since we've been on. We've been pretty. Pretty busy. flat out, pretty busy. So moved into a new house. Yeah, new, one. new studio, new podcast studio. Yeah, well, new, kitchen. Yeah, in the kitchen because I'm just just about to get the office yeah, set up. We'll talk about this office and yeah. then we're back in the kitchen. Yeah, just got another monitor. So I'm three monitors deep now. Green screen on the way. I'm going to have a photo light in the side. And I've finally hit influencer status. Bang, mic, boom. So I can pull down and in and speak into it, which is going to be cool. But... They didn't send me the right part. So that's been busy. Are we actually getting a green screen? Yeah, I'm going to get a green screen. I don't, I, don't no th- I don't know. Do you know what that is? Is that the, the way they... It's a green screen behind it you? It is. It's a screen that is green. That's, yeah, yeah. But I can so have... So you can make little background, cartoon characters anything. around behind you. So I'm speaking to people go, bang, what's that foot? Or I can just put up a research study right behind me and speak around it. Which can you not cool. do that without that? Uh, not as not as well because you need the screen. I'm pretty certain that the camera needs to recognise the screen to be able to do it. But I want to be able to, yeah, create some more interesting, engaging content summaries and courses and things like that. Really short ones, like a couple of hours and nuances of a running assessment. And I need the screen in the background to be able to point and go, hey, this guy's on his heel, this guy's on his forefoot, it's ruining his knees, they're all locked up. Oh, actually, let's talk about this one before we get into it. No, no, let's actually talk about why we're being too busy. So we've got the house. University's going back, so I'm teaching a, a lot more than what I was last time. Uh, I've got a couple of presentations coming up. Fingers crossed, not going to say where it is, but hopefully we are going to be going over to it present internationally. Where's in you? I'm going to be on a... Yeah, if you're coming along, I need someone to carry the yeah. shoes. And you, well, I need someone to be on the treadmill with your big canvas, high-pitched foot. And the other thing is hopefully doing some uh, prezos for the... Uh, what do you call it? For the uh, governing body of podiatry, which will be cool. Fingers crossed, which will be awesome. So we've been bloody busy, so that's why we haven't been on. But... That doesn't matter where. We're back into somewhat of a routine now. Mm, I feel like we will be in more of a routine now. It's been a hectic last few weeks, so I think that we can start to get mm. a little bit of a, a rhythm going yeah. now. What it was, it was surprising to me over the last three weeks, as a health professional, when like when are you meant to get time in 
to work on your own professional development. I mean, if you work mm. nine to five thirty, and let's say you're not back to back, even if you're not, you're still doing notes and letters. I don't think there's anyone on earth, maybe there is, that can get their notes and letters done with every single patient for the whole week. So you're catching up on things. Yeah. And now our weekends, like, I mean, a complete write off with work. Like, I have got nothing really. That's why podcasts are so good. Podcasts mm. just <clears throat> fix that problem so yeah. much. Like, just put in headphones, go for a run. When you're driving, yeah, listening but how to much podcasts. Do you take it in? Like I you, think I take it in quite a lot when I'm mm. running or when I'm driving or cleaning yeah. the house. That's another good one. Yeah, I, I'm a big podcast listener. Actually, maybe I'm just in a phase at the moment. I kind of go through phases, but lately I've been soaking it up. And you, you truly believe, like you, let's say you hear something on a on a podcast, you truly believe you'll then implement it clinically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. Really, yeah. I really do. And I think I take it in more when I'm moving around and doing things. Yeah. If I was just sitting on the lounge trying to listen to a podcast, yeah. I don't think that would be very, I don't know, I don't like think I'd take like it Like you wouldn't want to sit down, podcast in, listen to an expert talk about, like we have on this uh, podcast. Well, I would like to, but I just don't think, I don't know. Maybe if I was like really committed to like taking notes and... Because mm. you've got to think about, I mean, you... If something's presented to you, you don't have to, but you want to think about it critically. Mm. And if you listen to a 40-minute podcast and there's some awesome little nuances and you take some information, I guess that's that's better than, than nothing. And I don't know what the right or wrong answer mm. is, but if you hear something, you want to be able to think, how does that apply to me? Is it right or it's wrong? That kind of thing in, yeah. in the context of how you would, would treat. Yeah. I think that that's the good thing about it at this point in my career is that a lot of the time when I listen to a podcast, I can always link it back to a patient or an experience that I've had with someone before. And I think it helps me to remember it because I'm reflecting Ooh, and yeah. thinking, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. I'd do that differently next time. Or, oh, yes, I did that then and that worked mm. well. That's maybe why or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So we've got four segments to yeah. want to introduce and we're going to hit them like Every a week. nail to the... Yeah, so I've got segment... Of the week is going to be the injury of the week, the Instagram questionable stuff of the week, and then the person of the week. And I didn't tell you this. No, one. I did see that, and I was you wondering. did see it. I did see that you wrote that down, but I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. So there is lots of incredibly good content. Fuck, I need to get rid of that word. Phenomenal. Justin's always into that saying the word incredible. There is some mm. phenomenal content out there. So I thought each week we could nominate a post by someone talk a little bit about the post but also just give that person some bit of a shout out bit of a shout out yeah so i will talk about this one. so i'll start with the, the person of the week and we'll be quick here in this intro because we've got our part one with taylor coming up so person of the week this week for me was greg lehman post now we're starting with a very big <laughs> swing funny one yeah oh wait which one are you talking about oh i don't know well, right. I thought you were talking about the one that we were watching today. I think that was today. Yeah, that one was good. But there was a, a one, I actually shared it on the story. So it was talking about if you aren't assessing, you're guessing. And he said, nah, girl, you're assessing and guessing. So he said, why there is nothing wrong with a comprehensive blanket approach, many of our assessments give us the illusion of precision. Good treatment is much more about fishing with a net rather than with a pole. You might think you identify something relevant that tells you what to do, when in fact, you don't need that arbitrary finding to get benefit from a comprehensive intervention. So, some of the examples he was saying, 
you might have been taught to find poorly moving joints to then justify manipulation, but you don't need that indication to give it a crack. So I don't need to identify that spinal segment is stiff. All I need to know is you have a back, that you're safe and you have a spine. So you kind of, let's say you invent these, but you look for something and then that justifies your treatment. But in reality, you didn't actually need that justification. And it was a good example. And it's good to see Greg coming in down into the, into the weeds because as soon as I saw the word orthotic, bang, magnifying glass, thought this has got to be as right as ever because you're not a podiatrist. And that's like, you know, talking about politics if you're not a president. But I was only kidding. But it was interesting to see some cool stuff with orthotics and navicular drop. So he was saying, you don't need to assess navicular drop or flat feet, which I don't think anyone assesses flat feet anyway, to use an orthotic to help with knee or heel pain. Your indication to try is they have pain, they have a foot. So your assessment did nothing to further your reasoning if you already practiced comprehensively. And I will say this on the air, take me to court. I do not assess navicular drop or drift in any sense. How would you, how do you even do that? Uh, you like, so you basically measure, so you get a bit of paper, a centimeter normal, uh, a centimeter drift and drop is considered normal, whatever that kind of means. But I guess you could have a normal. But basically, you put a bit of paper on the ground, you mark it with a pencil, and then you get them to do some movement, and then you mark it again and see how much it's moved. So you can assess drop and, and drift. And there is some research to say that uh, increased navicular drop is associated with an increased risk of, of tissue related pain or exercise induced lower limb pain. But anyway, you don't need to know that mm. to be able to give that. And it really, it makes it very simple, which I'm sure it's not, but I just thought it was really, really, really cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, like so it. as an example, plantar fascia example, you might think measuring the vehicular drop, first tone mobility, strength and foot type will allow you to tailor your treatment. But guidelines already recommend all these things for people with, with plantar heel pain. And we've, I've been talking to a lot of people online lately about the VOLD, because I know you measure stuff in your clinic, which is cool. Mm. I don't know about the whole buy-in and I want to kind of table that for now and just talk about the measuring. You don't need to measure that to give someone a comprehensive rehab program or even a rehab program, do you? If someone comes in with Achilles tendinopathy, do you need to measure what's happening from a strength, stability, that kind of thing? Do you need to palpate the multiscope? Or saying or suggesting, mm. I think you're right, particularly in that early stage you're probably going to find a way to load them if that's the the track that you feel like you need to mm. go down however from a performance perspective i definitely see value in it so are you talking about more for pain and injury or i guess then so. performance well, i think that's mm. different like i'm thinking about the four steps for example yeah and maybe even like the nord board but on on there i think yeah. that there's you could look at more performance-based metrics. And then the other thing as well, like looking at someone's rotator cuff strength, I do think that you need to be assessing that closely and measuring progress. Like, yeah, But do you need that to give them the rehab? Like if someone has pain in their shoulder, say, hey, I want to get back to going back to CrossFit, do you need to assess their strength? Because even if you get a result, like let's say for argument's sake, it's 20, like when can they go back? You're not really looking at, oh, okay, when it gets to 45, aren't you saying... When well, you I feel guess comfortable, when we can do the movements of CrossFit in the gym that I'm supervising you not in. Not even just the shoulder, but anywhere. If you have found that there is a, a specific deficit somewhere, mm. then you want to be specifically loading that structure. So, for example, if someone has a really weak internal rotator, mm. <coughs> rotator, intern, yeah, inter, internal, yeah, internal rotation. Yeah, then you're specifically going to be loading that, or vice versa with external rotation or whatever it might be. Yeah. 
Whereas if they are globally, like say you've got a 50-year-old who hasn't been super active and they're just a bit uh, deconditioned maybe and they're getting pain that you think is more related to just the fact that they're globally deconditioned, then maybe you don't need to be so specific with the rehab and you can give them some bigger compound movements and just start to get them doing something. So, but do you need... So, still the same question. Do you need to measure their internal rotation like can you just wouldn't you assess it anyway like if i'm imagining the calf and the shoulder is similar so great can you do they got a left side achilles can you do 10 on your left 10 on your right how does that feel oh that feels weaker or harder or it looks harder or weaker i don't need that objective score and i'd imagine it would be similar with the shoulder i mean don't don't get me wrong and i was having this conversation with with Eve, where I guess you don't need to do anything though, but then you're not you being very thorough. You don't, you can't go all the way down the other end but and say that you, you don't need anything. No, I know, but I'm, the but you can assess them without measuring, is what I'm saying. Measuring it in the sense of how much force they can output. You can, but if you want to be providing someone with a thorough assessment, then I think that the best way to go about that is by being as objective as you can. And but, w- but you don't need to do that though. Like, do you, like, why do you need to get that exact figure is what I'm asking. Like, can you not give them a comprehensive rehab program without it? I guess you I, can. I just yeah. don't think it's the best thing for the person. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. We could probably, and I was thinking about this this week, we could probably do a whole podcast with, and I was thinking maybe like a round table of people that use it and don't use it and kind of have a bit of a discussion around its benefits and things like that because I, I know the the big message is you get buy-in from patients but it's I, also useful in terms yeah. of m- monitoring and measuring their progress as well yeah i guess like that partially comes down to buy-in but it's also a metric that shows that they're that your treatment has been successful and that they are following through with what you've recommended it also gives an indication that they're maybe are more tolerant to, to pain or loading through symptoms in some mm. ways as well. So I think it gives you a lot of information that you can't be objective with a manual muscle test. Yeah. Well, we'll move on to the next segment. I'll leave it with one, one reply to that is all those things, you for it to be successful, it's not based off them going from 40 to 45 to 50 to 55. It's based on what they want to get back to. Like, is, are they going to be so much more engaged if they can do if they can output 200 on the calf raise compared to 150 or the fact that they can run for three kilometers instead of not being able to run like it's what's important to them and i i do think that we maybe put too much importance because we think it's like i think data is awesome it's so so cool and i've been caught out before maybe that is my bias where i'm being so over technical with someone and they're like i really don't care i just want you to help me or mm. I just want to get back to running. I don't care about this really in-depth gait assessment. Just tell me what I need to change and I can do it. So, yeah. But then, then again, I'm biased. I don't, don't actually have a valid machine, so I don't see that. Because mm. you would obviously get some patients like, oh, that's really cool. I'm seeing this improve each time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 100%. And I've never had that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, do, I do get your point. I stick with my guns, though, and I think that there's value in it. Is that, the, is that the right thing? <laughs> yeah, I think... Would you say stick to your guns? Yeah, I think so. Did stick I say that? Yeah, yeah I, I just... I've never heard you. You just say things sometimes that I'm, I'm like, I've known you for a long time and you've never said that once. And you just come out with it. Anyway, so Instagram post of the week. It's kind of just... So Greg Lehman, go and look up that post. Oh, 
you want to talk about this one, you and I are going to share this one, and I'm going to give you a hint. Podcast, two runners talking about it recently. So it's, it's Instagram post of the week, but really anything social, anything that's out there in the in the sphere. Didn't you just do that? No, so the person, uh, the, uh, no, that was person of the week. So oh, person okay. of the week was Greg Lemon, the post falls underneath that. So he's the person right, to so follow. Right, so you did two? You just did them no, both? No, 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 just person of the week that was. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. Oh, so the question, this is questionable Instagram content. Yeah, questionable Instagram or podcast related stuff. Something about wind and tilt, possibly maybe I thought we could, uh, have a little discussion about if not so you you pick it though but that'll be mine next week you know what I i'm talking f- about don't no you? i forget how could you forget it's been in my mind can i just quickly say then you can say yours is that what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about yeah 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 true i forgot about that um i can't really remember what they were saying now you'll have uh, to rehash I'll, it but I'll, yeah let's talk about that all right i'll give it a quick quick spill so the these two guys have a have a, a podcast a running podcast and oh, about the blood flow too. yeah so they were talking about and don't get me wrong, we're not, I don't mean to say this with everything, every single time, man, I've heard this on other podcasts, this is about the idea, not the person, mm. you can say that clearly. So they were talking about someone running, and they were talking about how the wind was causing them to have more of an anterior pelvic tilt, and the wind was changing their tilt position. So, you know, that's questionable, <laughs> whatever. A couple of minutes later, this person's receiving some treatment. And they talk about how things are locked up, knees are locked up, hips are locked up, the body's just locked up. And basically what has happened from everything being locked up is they now have their lower limb vascular insufficiency. So they have a vascular, you know, a, I think they said vascular insufficiency. Yeah, because like the the leg is, the, their leg feels dead. Not yeah, because it's locked up. Because the up. knees and hips are locked up. And they were and saying you don't treat the symptom. People get treatment for this and that, but... You know, if you want to treat the vascular insufficiency, because the person obviously doing the treatment can feel the arteries with their hand, and it just, you know, I think of the the people that I work with who do these assessments and what it actually takes to assess if someone has vascular insufficiency and all the testing that goes through that, and there's certain people that do it, and I don't think that they were talking about a sports doctor who specialises in that or a cardiologist. Mm. And I thought that was yeah, that uh, was quite, questionable. That was a bit questionable. Questionable big time. Yeah. Anyway. I guess the I guess the wind could cause a not like and not saying this is a bad thing, but if if you're running against wind, you would probably be Oh the tilt's over. Yeah, yeah. You would be into a bit of a tip more of an anterior tilt. Yeah. So that's um, not a bad thing. No, no, no. When it's about fifteen Ks an hour, I usually go posterior horizontal. Do you? Yeah? Anything under I'm always posterior and I hold that. You don't like the anterior. I don't think you could no, go I anterior. Always... You're too slumber. Yeah, because I go too anterior, I ended up with that unilateral popliteal vascular insufficiency oh, syndrome. Oh, true, true, true. That's and right. then you have to wear orthotics for your heel pain. <laughs> yeah. All I need is a foot and I can wear them. I don't need any assessment. <laughs> yeah. But um, that's, uh, that was a bit bit questionable. I but... had a good injury this week. Yeah. I've been, I actually spoke to you about it. I, I've had this injury for the last four weeks maybe mm. good old syndesmosis injury but was I had a really big surgery um they had like syndesmosis repair os trigonum removed uh lateral ankle stabilization i think there was like a yeah. perineal yeah 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 so and complex ankle big complex ankle surgery yeah and they've gone so well and it's that's fine. just great yeah gone yeah. gone re- progressing Amazingly, good to see, and minimal pain, great function, and dope for them. 
That's a huge, huge surgery. I mean, anything lower limb, just any surgery is complex, but compared to like a knee replacement or a hip replacement, anything in the foot and the ankle is is pretty crazy. And the long-term effects of rehab and deconditioning. I think any surgery is pretty... That sounds a little bit more complex than like a knee replacement. Yeah. And are you, how's your rehab traveling? Great. Yep. Stoked with how well they're progressing. Do you logically work through like a mobility, endurance, strength, plyometric, or are you trying to incorporate them as early as possible and doing them all I think together? there's crossover. You sort of start with a little bit more range of motion and then you start to incorporate strength, but it's not like you have to get full range before yeah. you start strength and it's not like you've got to get full strength before you start plyos. Yeah. There's crossover, but yeah, there's a, a, a logical order that you do follow and then there's overlaps between them too for a syndesmosis what's your first exercise generally and i know you can't it's individualized but generally speaking your first progressive exercise for someone that starts plyos syndesmosis ankle surgery i often start with depth drop so just the landing landing on two so just landing off a box or a step and I'll also, so this is, yeah, before the plyometric component, and I'll also do some kind of triple extension, so yep. get them into, like, a little bit of a squat and then Come up extend on up onto toes, toes, sometimes holding weight depending on where they're up to as well. So before they go onto the plyos, they're, like, the prep for the plyos yep. that I tend to... So do they come up and then do they drop down hard or they just come up and then slowly come down from their heels? So you come up on your toes, that's right? Yep. Uh, yep. the, the goal of that one is more the like the jump without the jump yep. and then the depth drop is more getting prepared for the, the impact right. and I use that to almost just assess you know how the ankle goes with response in response to impact if there's any swelling or pain yep. and yeah yeah great yeah I always wondered with your the progression into plyo if that's what good do you to, do to know I probably don't have that many many post operative I mean sometimes I'll go with the pulses and then sometimes I'll get them to just do a double jump and just jump and land and yeah. jump and land softly and really up against the wall, really not much. I mean, you could even sometimes question whether they do leave the ground. So it would almost be like a triple extension. Yeah. And then from there, you know, get them to actually do it in sequence and then to, to yeah. single. But uh, yeah, I probably do more of the death jumps towards the end when I get them to do them quicker. But maybe I can just do a yeah jump and, and land. Land, yeah. I do it you know, as a high-level balance almost as well because then I progress that to single leg and then mm. they've got to be able to balance and, and also go sideways as well. So yeah. like a lateral land, yeah. particularly for a lateral ankle instability. Yeah, it's I funny when someone's so confident, you know, in the... What would the, the play? Is it Front. axial? No, up and frontal? No, it's not frontal. It is sagittal, but sagittal is uh, like uh, extension flexion. But just straight up and down. I guess you could say... That would be frontal, right? No, frontal side to side. Oh, okay. So yeah. sagittal then. And yeah. then frontal would be... Yeah, and you see someone hop on the spot and hop forward and they're so confident mm-hmm. and you get them to go side to side and it's just a, it's like a whole other thing. It's like yeah. introducing plyometric sequence then again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's finish it there and let these listeners... Listen to Haley Goldberg. I'm going to re listen to this podcast. Yeah, it was great. It was really, Real good. Welcome back, lovely listeners, to another episode of the Sports Medicine Project. Very excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Kayla Goldberg from Colorado Springs, the Hypermobile Cairo on Instagram. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Taylor. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, we were just talking 
off air for our listeners because most are in Australia, a couple in India, a couple in the States, but can you tell kind of everyone where you are and also where that is in the States so they don't know uh, their geographical location as well? I'm really bad at geography, but it's <laughs> in Colorado, Colorado Springs, which is middle of the States. Um, it's mountain time, if that helps anybody. Um, I'm originally from Florida, so I went to school in Oregon. So I've been on all all around the US, but I've never been to Australia and that is on my goal list. So hopefully I'll make it out there one of these days. Yeah, it's pretty far away. Like, so far away yeah, from everything. It's not yeah. a couple of hours down the road. It's like a whole couple of days traveling to get across to here. Same for us to get across to there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. And today we're talking about the the concept or the, the topic of hypermobility, which I'm sure we'll get into lots of things about that. But tell us kind of how does someone find interest in hypermobility and kind of what's your background and, and practices and degrees and training and, and that kind of thing for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a chiropractor by trade. I graduated about two years ago. Um, I've always known that I was hypermobile, never really thought much about it until I was in chiro school. And around my second year of chiro school, kind of near when the pandemic started, I started to become very symptomatic and kind of had to take it a little bit more seriously and started posting about it on social media, realized there's a huge need for this type of learning and that there's really not a lot out there for hypermobile bodies. And we're not taught about this stuff in school. So I was like, all right, well, if I don't, who will? And started doing a deep dive, looking into it. And now I 100% only work with hypermobile bodies. So yeah, so you mentioned your your hypermobile, your yourself, what does the, I guess is, is hypermobility itself is it just a really broad description of someone having flexible joints or what kind of is involved if someone is hypermobile? Yeah. So I like to think hypermobility as like the umbrella term. And then there's symptomatic hypermobility and asymptomatic hypermobility. So you can have asymptomatic hypermobility, believe it or not. Hypermobility by definition is when your ligaments are lax to a point where you're going to have a greater range of motion in your joints. There's different types of hypermobility. When I say hypermobility as like that umbrella term, I'm talking about generalized joint hypermobility, which means it's in at least five joints or more. You can have like just hypermobile hands and hypermobile feet, and that would be called peripheral hypermobility. Uh, Um, If it's less than five, it's not considered generalized joint hypermobility. So when we talk about like the umbrella term of hypermobility, usually it's when it's in five joints or more. Yeah. And is it like, is it pretty, pretty common? I can't, I imagine it would be pretty hard to to look at statistics and things, but, and we were just talking off air. I mean, so many times people come into the clinic and like, oh yeah, I've always, I've always been really flexible. And it's like, you are quite flexible. And I think it's actually, this is what, what's happening. But in the general population, is, is it pretty common and people are just unaware? Like you said, I guess if it's asymptomatic, people are unaware. Yeah, it's, it's super common. It's very common in feet, more common in females than in males. Um, as far as the numbers, we don't have them. I don't know that we ever will. That's mm. my my honest opinion. But I do think it's way more common than we ever realized. I think that's starting to come up now. Um, but like I said, asymptomatic hypermobility does exist. Also, hypermobility can be acquired. So it doesn't always have to be from genetics. If you're a dancer, a gymnast, a cheerleader, ice skater, a swimmer, it can be acquired. And that in itself can lead to other different things so there's a lot 
when it comes to hypermobility, but yes, it is common. And then what, what would those common symptoms be or something to, you know, be listening out for when you're, when you're taking an initial assessment um, of a person, or even if someone's listening themselves? Yeah. So when you think about hypermobility, it's your collagen and your connective tissue and connective tissue lines everything. And so let's first kind of go into that. Like I said, hyper generalized joint hypermobility is our umbrella. And then there's asymptomatic and symptomatic. We're going to talk about the symptomatic. Within symptomatic hypermobility, there's a bunch of different disorders, if you will, that can go in that category. The two that I work with and the ones we're mainly talking about are hypermobile spectrum disorder and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a genetic connective tissue disorder, and there's 13 different types. The hypermobile type is the most common, and it's the only one that doesn't have a genetic marker. So for all the other types, you can get a genetic test, and it will tell you if you have that type. And if you don't have any of those other types, you get the HEDS mm. uh, label. Now, HSD can be acquired, so meaning you can get it from sports, you can get it from life. It can also be genetic as well. Right now, from a musculoskeletal point of view, they're treated exactly the same. They should be looked at exactly the same. One is not more severe than another. Right now, they're the same. I do believe that will be changing very, very soon because um, the Norris lab, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but they are doing a study to figure out the gene for HEDS. Once that comes out, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is going to be outdated and it's all going to be changing. But for right now, that is kind of what we're dealing with. And so when you have a connective tissue disorder, like I said, connective tissue lines, everything. And so it affects your entire system. It's a system. Sim, it's a entire, your entire system. I don't know. I'm blanking on that word, but things that you can look out for is generalized joint pain, chronic pain in general, and then also on top of that, some very common symptoms are GI. Your GI system is usually involved some sort of dysautonomia. So like POTS, orthostatic intolerance, things like that. So if you don't know what dysautonomia is, look out for dizziness. Um, look out. Have you ever fainted before? Pre-syncope, anything like in that realm? Brain fog. And then mast cell activation syndrome is very, very common in this population, which is when your mast cells produce too much histamine and that can lead to skin sensitivity. Um, so if you see on your intake form, someone comes in, they have chronic pain or widespread pain, and they also have stomach issues and sensitive skin, maybe some dizziness, look for hypermobility. What, what, what was the, the reason for the skin again? What was that called? Mass cell activation syndrome. Mass cell cell activation syndrome. Okay. Mass cell, yeah. Mass yeah. cell. Yeah, and they producing too mass. much histamine. It just makes the skin quite quite sensitive. Yeah, so it affects more than just the skin. That's partially for some people why their GI system can get so affected. But yeah. sensitive skin can be a really good kind of first sign that you may be dealing with some sort of mass cell issue. Yeah, and do you find that people have are aware of of this or they've just been told yeah you're more flexible or, or come on yeah I've always been double jointed so I think it's changing um if you asked me this two years ago I would say I don't think anybody knows that this even exists um now with long COVID and the similarities that they're seeing between 
hypermobility and long COVID and also social media and TikTok and it blowing up on there. Mm-hmm. I personally am dealing with more people who are very, very aware, but prior, I would say, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like the the terms of hypermobility and flexibility kind of get thrown around together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on that because from my experience, I, I see hypermobile people who are actually very inflexible by definition. So yeah, be keen to hear your thoughts on on that. Yeah, so they're two totally separate things. And most of the time, hypermobile bodies are not flexible. And sometimes hypermobile bodies will gaslight themselves because they're like, well, I'm not flexible. How how mm. could I be hypermobile? And they're not the same thing at all. So hypermobility is when your ligaments have laxity and your joint itself goes beyond the range of motion range of motion it's supposed to. Flexibility is your muscle's ability to lengthen. And so a good example of this is someone who can touch the floor palms down, but their hamstrings are super, super, super tight. They're not flexible, but they are hypermobile. And that's why they're able to reach that range of motion. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you were saying before that people it, it can be acquired and the, the clinic I work in, we see lots and lots of musculoskeletal you know, aches and, and pains and conditions. And I tend, generally see lots of dancers and they're, it's always, you know, we see them and have, take their subjective history, have a seat on the chair. And always the first joint I have a look at is their subtalar joint, the one that sits below the ankle. And their inversion and eversion is just incredible. And is that something that they may not, I guess, they they haven't had hypermobility since they were born, but they've acquired it over the course of their dancing career. And can that then be something that they hold for the rest of their lives? Or is that something that's only happening while they're they're going into those extreme ranges of motion? And then just to add to that, sorry, I'm loading this question up for you, Taylor. Um, <laughs> would If it is acquired, would they also have those other associated symptoms like GI distress and skin cell changes and things like that? Or would that be more localised to the joint itself? So the answer to all of these is it depends. So (laughs) it can be all of those things that you just So I think it really taking it, taking the subjective history along with the objective findings is really what we need to do here. But for that specific instance, let's say you have a dancer come in, you notice that their ankles are extremely hypermobile or any other joints hypermobile. Are they having any systemic issues? And ask them, have you been... Uh, flex and yes, flexibility and hypermobility are different, but most people understand flexibility mm. and don't understand hypermobility. So if you ask, like, were you super flexible when you were a kid? Did you fall a lot when you were a kid? Did you have bad proprioception? Did you sprain your ankles a lot as a kid? Is this something that you've always had or was it when you started dancing? Now, the hard part is usually dancers and gymnasts and cheerleaders start when they're really young. They start when Mm. they're about eight years old. So it's kind of hard to distinguish sometimes if this is something that they've been dealing with their whole life or if it was acquired through a sport. And that's when you would ask, does your mom have hypermobility? Do you know if anybody in your family is bendy like you? Were they dancers? Were they gymnasts? Because usually when you are hypermobile, you're going to do the sports that use your hypermobility because you're good at them. And I could say that myself. I was a cheerleader my whole life. And a lot of us were hypermobile because, and we were attracted to the sport because of that. Mm. So um, 
The answer is it depends. Now, as far as if you have acquired hypermobility, would you have the systemic issues? Also, it depends. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And yeah. if will it stay even after dance? The answer to that is yes. So once your ligaments get past a point, they don't come back, unfortunately. So the answer to that is yes. And do you find for people like that, one of the most important things, of course, is, is education, explaining kind of what it is and what it means for them and for, for people listening, including ourselves. I mean, seeing someone for the first time and explaining, you know, you are more flexible or more hypermobile, what that means for them. Do you have any kind of quicker bullet points or education pieces or analogies and find the the short pieces of information that someone can remember, even if it's just on the first couple of consults, are, are generally best for people to, to be able to explain? Do you have anything that you like people to, to get to think about about themselves? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it really depends on the patient's goals. Also, I think it's really important to not promote fear as well mm -hmm. as knowing that it is blowing up on TikTok. If you say somebody, if you tell your patient, oh, you're hypermobile, and then they go look that up, they're going to see a lot of stuff on the internet that may not apply to them. And so mm -hmm. I actually like to warn people about that. Like before you go on social media, before you go down these rabbit holes, here are better resources, start here. And so I actually have a resource page on my website that I like to give out to clients and patients and other clinicians so that they can have good, solid resources to go to first before they kind of go on Reddit or mm -hmm. go on TikTok because it's it's a scary place out there. <laughs> um, but as far as like generalized things that I like to tell people if I see that they are hypermobile is that it's going to take longer for them and that expectation upfront that it might take longer for you to, let's say, build strength. It might take longer for you to heal in general. And so that expectation, that timeline is going to change because of that. I think it's really important to say that upfront. Mm. Other things I like to go through is proprioception in general. We know that hyperbomal bodies have less proprioception and it's something that we constantly need to be working on. And so I like to give proprioception stuff to all of my clients. Um, and then I like to have them look out for certain things. So the number one thing is if they have HEDS, they need to go get an echo. They need to have a cardiologist and rule out the big, bad and scary anything heart wise. That's like the number one most generalized referral. I would say for anybody that is hypermobile, get an echo, rule out big, bad and scary in the heart and then ask are you dizzy ever? Do you have any brain fog? Do you get nauseous ever? And if the answers to those are yes, then refer to GI. Um, I would say, like I said, it really depends on the person because it is a spectrum. And so it's mm. going to be, the symptoms are so wide and varied for everybody. Someone can be over here on the spectrum and really not have a lot of systemic symptoms or over here and be really, really, really affected everywhere in their body with with the heart what's the the concern with that yeah so with any connective tissue disorder so think marfans is in this same category ehlers-danlos syndrome any connective tissue disorder there is a risk for cardio issues in general mm -hmm. and so just getting an echo to rule out any of those is really really important yeah. and are you ruling out the condition or that the heart is involved 
that the heart is involved. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. Marfan's and EDS, are they the main, uh, I guess, bigger conditions that your radar's up for? Or is there anything else that you should be thinking about? I would say yes. Um, I always pronounce this wrong, so I'm sorry if I pronounce this wrong, but <laughs> syndrome is up there as well, but that you can really tell based off of um, physical features. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome doesn't really have a look. That's why it's kind of harder. It can be anybody. Marfan's does have more of a look. It's easier to see some physical features, but it's still not 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything in the connective tissue disorder category, but Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and Marfan's are usually the ones that you're going to see in clinic. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit about language before. Um, what what would the common things that you hear from say patients who have seen multiple clinicians before that are that is more of like a fear inducing language that they have heard before that clinicians can be sort of mindful of to not portray onto hypermobile patients yeah so I hear so many so many things the number one thing I hear unfortunately is that there's nothing that can be done and that is just extremely disappointing because there's so much that you can do if you're hypermobile to manage and to gain a quality of life. And that's just being plain lazy. If you're telling someone you have a genetic connective tissue disorder, it can't be cured. There's nothing that can be done. Go home. I don't want to see you again. And I do, I hear that a lot and it's really upsetting. So don't say that. Um, (laughs) Other things is you're never going to be able to run again. You're never going to be able to strength train again. You're never going to be able to do yoga again. There is no absolutes in hypermobility. Every single one of those things can be modified. And some of them can be really, really beneficial. Strength training has now been proven to be extremely beneficial for hypermobile bodies. And yoga can be really, really beneficial with some modifications. Running can be done in hypermobile bodies. Again, modifications needed, training needed, guidance needed 100%, but just blanket saying like, no, you're never going to be able to do that is just not true. Um, And it makes people very, very, very fearful of moving their bodies. And also I hear a lot like you're more fragile. Don't do this. Don't do that. So things like that. Absolutes, I guess, is is what I'm trying to say. And I guess that that certainly comes back to what you were saying before, I guess, pre-framing the the timeline may be a little bit longer especially dealing with pain and injury and the strength training because a, a common one that i hear as well is people understand hypermobility like great just go on strength train and kind of giving the advice that they would to anyone and i think it's and this is what you know what i wanted to to ask you <clears throat> the advice is a little bit different or probably where to start and you know we're getting right into it like sets and reps and you may fatigue quicker it may be harder you may be sore maybe do it less frequent do you have any advice there you know, where in musculoskeletal rehab and, and health, I guess, advice to people that are treating someone that is hypermobile and recommending them to strength train and I guess do any kind of, of training? Yeah, definitely. And so this is what I do with clients is I get them back to strength training or start strength training. And like you said, the it has to be gradual. It has to be starting at their tolerable starting point. There is a time and a place to go through your full end range and there's a time and a place not to. And so subluxations are extremely common in this population, which is when your joint partially dislocates and comes back. Also, full dislocations can be common in this population. And so teaching your patients the signs and symptoms of those things and what to do if and when that happens 
and then also how to avoid it. So a good example is like bench press. If you know that you go beyond 90 and bench press and your shoulder subluxes, let's do it on the floor instead so that we're not risking going below 90. Um, other things is not hyperextending. So let's say RDLs for an example, keeping a slight knee bend so that you're not hyperextending mm-hmm. or when you're in quadruped and you're not hyperextending and putting all of that weight on a hyperextended elbow. Things like that can go a long way. And then, like I said at the very beginning, adding proprioception into your strength training in some sort of capacity can be really, really beneficial as well. What kind of role do you see proprioception training playing in hypermobile bodies? Yeah, so a lot of hypermobile bodies will tell you that when they were little, they were the clumsy ones. They're always rolling their ankles. They're always spraining their ankles. They can't walk in a straight line. And we actually know that hypermobile bodies have less proprioception in general. And so when we can get that proprioceptive input and they know where their body is in space and they're more aware of where their body is in space, they start falling less. They start being, stop being so quote unquote clumsy and less injuries can happen, less subluxations can happen, less dislocations can happen. And also you're able to not have to look down as much when you're walking. You can just walk normally and that feels better. So things like that. I guess also like uh, it's a good starting point. Like if someone's quite symptomatic, it's probably a, a nice place to begin if they can't tolerate harder things like strength training yeah. and and that sort of um, routine as well. When, when you were talking about strength training before, for someone that has never done any strength training or any resistance training, what advice would you give them to start with for say the, the simple things like a deadlift, a squat, a calf raise? Because I think, you know, people talk about being more flexible, being more hypermobile, the, the most important thing that you do is you train through a full range of motion, which makes logical sense to get strong through that range. But based off what, what you're saying, that perhaps isn't the best place to start, just working in a range that's comfortable for them, seeing how that feels, and then kind of progressing from there. Is that a, a good way to start? Yeah. And I, I mean, in my opinion, I think that's a good way to start with everybody. I don't yeah. think that's unique to hypermobility. I, I'm a big fan of finding your tolerable starting point gradually exposing you and gradually working our way up to whatever our goal may be. Mm. Um, But I think that's a very, very safe and good approach when it comes to hypermobility. One of the things I hear the most, I guess, complaint when hypermobile bodies go to PT or they go to start exercising for the first time, they're like, well, I did everything they said. And I was so flared after Mm. I couldn't get out of bed for three weeks. And so you really don't want to push past those limits, that's not going to get you where you want to go. It might take you some steps backwards. You're better off starting at a tolerable starting point and going slowly. Yeah, I've I've found that quite a lot, like the fatigability as well. Like someone doing just a a simple set of 10 calf raises can feel so challenging towards the end compared to someone that perhaps isn't. And yeah, just starting a little bit lower because you know, worst case scenario, it takes you a couple of extra weeks or months to get to where they need to, but that's a lot better for them over that journey. Totally. And yeah. it a lot of people, when they do the 10 calf raises and they get so fatigued, they get defeated. It's like, I can't even yeah. do two, 10 calf raises. Like, what am I ever going to be able to do? And that's reframing that mindset and knowing that it's not your fault. It's not your fault that your muscles have to constantly be on to provide the stability that your ligaments can't. That's why they're fatiguing so easily. And so we can do, we can build them up, but we have to do it a little bit slower and that's okay. 
Mm. Mm. Do you, I wanted to, while we're talking about exercise, your proprioception advice, can you give us a couple of examples of what you give to people? Because I think when it comes to proprioception, people are like, great, let's do, this is my always go to when I first graduated, it was great, let's do three by 30 seconds standing on one leg. Good, you can do that. You don't need to do anything more. You're completely balanced uh, is there any more advice exercises you can kind of give people to think about and I guess kind of a progression and a bit of a ladder yeah so I like to incorporate proprioception into like my client's general life so mm-hmm. I'll say when you're making your coffee put a sticky note on your little coffee maker and you're going to close your eyes and stand on one leg when you're brushing your teeth you're gonna mm-hmm. same type of thing so that's more like lower body stuff but also incorporating it into their exercises as well and really playing around with your with your senses. So closing your eyes, changing your your hearing input, things like that can go a long way. Um, there's also a huge comorbidity with being neurodivergent when you're hypermobile. And so sensory and over, being oversensitized is something that you may commonly see with hypermobility. And that's something to also be aware of. Um, but then proprioception for the neck, I like to use lasers um, and trying to get the laser into different areas. Oh, you cool. can do that easily too. Um, yeah. It's really, you just buy it on Amazon. Um, and then also just like eye movements, different eye movements that you can do. And while you're standing on one leg, like trying to focus on an A or things like mm. that. Mm, I'm keen to talk about more about the upper cervical instability stuff. But um, before we do that, I do want to just ask you about the the role of stretching, like if it, if it is at all recommended ever or if it is in some ways contraindicated in, in quite hypermobile people and then almost like the extension of that could potentially even be like something like swimming or gymnastics and cheerleading, like those sports where you are really pushing to extreme ranges. Where, where do you sit with those kinds of activities? Yeah. So I think stretching has a time and a place. And I think it really depends on the person. I will say my one generalized rule is no overstretching. So in cheerleading and gymnastics and dance, this is when you have, you're in the splits and you're elevated and you have weight on you and you're being loaded in a stretch. That's what overstretching is. That is contraindicated in hypermobile bodies. And it's also just not necessary at all or worth it. You can get beautiful body positions without it. Um, So please stay away from that. But stretching as a whole, I think, has been demonized a lot for a lot of different reasons, not just in hypermobility. Um, We know that stretching doesn't change our muscle tone like we once thought it did. So my rule of thumb for stretching is keep it short, keep it dynamic. If it feels good, do it, but don't do it too long and don't if you feel the need to always stretch one area there's probably a reason for that and let's try to figure out what that reason is yeah for sure I definitely see that in the clinic it's it's often the that that aching joint they they have the the need to want to continue stretching it stretching it stretching I'm like well that's clearly not working you've been doing that so maybe we go in the other direction and try loading it or something different exactly and that that's the exact route I would take um I don't think that you need to fear stretching if you're hypermobile I think there needs to be some guidance around it and if you feel like am I doing the right thing find someone that can help you answer that. It's going to be very individualized, but as a whole, I don't think stretching is as bad as some people like to Mm. claim it is. Is there a joint or or structure that you would most commonly see 
injured but when dealing with, with people that are hypermobile it's like the shoulder or the back or the foot i mean it again it's obviously individualized and things but is there one that you commonly see where people do generally have most of their discomfort and pain um i th- all, all of them but yeah. i would say i would say I wouldn't even say just joints because the spine is affected as well. But um, as far as subluxations go, I would say the most common areas are probably the shoulder, Mm. the knee and the hips. Um, Ankles, sprained ankles, definitely, definitely high on that list. And then upper cervical instability is also high on that list. Mm. Uh, Can we talk about that? What what is that? And and what might um, we be seeing in the clinic if someone has an upper cervical instability issue? Yeah. So upper cervical instability is an umbrella term for craniocervical instability or atlantoaxial instability. So either your skull and your first vertebra or your first vertebra and your second vertebra, those ligaments are too laxed. And the biggest concern is our brain stem goes right through there. So if you have, and there's three stages of upper cervical instability, mild, moderate, and severe. If you have severe upper cervical instability, your brain stem can be getting kind of crushed and you may need surgery in order for that to not happen anymore. Um, but the mild and moderate is what more we deal with and can help conservatively. Um, And so those muscles in your neck, because of the lack of stability that your ligaments can't provide, have to be really, really, really strong and really, really prepared to handle the load that they need. And most of the time they're not. So common symptoms, headaches, dizziness, a lot of them overlap with dysautonomia, which makes it complicated, but neck pain, feeling like a bobblehead, like you can't hold your head up. Um, And this is the most important thing is that it is extremely contraindicated to do a typical chiropractic HVLA adjustment if you have upper cervical instability. And I can tell you firsthand, it's not fun. Don't do it. (laughs) Mm. Is that is that well known in the chiropractic space to not do that? (laughs) Um, as someone who went through chiro school with unknown upper cervical instability so I didn't know I had upper cervical instability when I was getting adjusted every single day in chiro school um it's known that you're that it's contraindicated to adjust if you're have upper cervical instability but it's not known how to test for upper cervical instability Uh, right so yes it's known but I wouldn't say it's emphasized or even taught enough to the point where you would be able to say oh this person has upper cervical instability i'm not going to adjust them what what is the testing for it or the assessment for it uh yeah so this is the 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 hardest part is that right now to get diagnosed with upper cervical instability you do need imaging and the imaging is an upright mri or a dynamic motion x-ray which are both really 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 hard to get So that makes it extremely unaccessible to a lot of people. Um, What's her healed and empowered on Instagram. She's a a physician assistant. She actually specializes in reading images of upper cervical instability. If you can't get a DMX x-ray or an upright MRI, and that is a game changer because it can be almost impossible for some people to get Mm -hmm. these imaging done. So Mm -hmm. if that's something that you struggle with, or if you need someone to ever read, imaging, I would definitely 
especially in the States from, from our understanding, like the cost of imaging over there is crazy compared to here. Like we can bulk bill MRI, uh, not MRIs, x-rays, sorry. And so same day MRIs for and, a couple well, hundred bucks. MRIs, so. yeah, they're only what, $300. So yeah. it's not a ridiculous, like it's, it's worth it, I would say. Whereas my understanding of in the States is it's much expensive bad, and much hard, more yeah. expensive. Yeah. yeah. And it's, Sometimes you have to travel because your state might not have one. So there's a lot of barriers in the states to getting this. Type yeah, of it's crazy. We were speaking to someone that uh, they were maybe in Canada and they were saying they had to drive across the border the whole couple of days, go overnight, $1,000 out of pocket. And like, even we know that MRIs, the person that reads it, the person that takes them, there's all these factors that could make it not worthwhile. It's crazy that, that that's yeah. the, the case. And the upright MRI is really uncomfortable. So that makes it even worse. Like it is the most uncomfortable imaging ever because you have to stay in your symptomatic position standing for an hour. It's horrible. Oh, wow. It's horrible. It's really. I suppose then without the access to imaging or as sort of readily available as it could be, then you get really good at your clinical assessment. So well, let's talk exactly. about that a little bit. What What is the typical assessment that you're doing with people? Yeah, so first is subjective and just asking questions. So there is a really, really great paper um, by Leslie Russett. Um, I can send it to you guys. It has a list of symptoms and it has a chart that you can just check off. And the amount of those symptoms can be diagnostic for mild and moderate again for severe you're going to need imaging but if Mm. we're talking about mild and moderate we can do it based off of symptoms and some other orthopedic tests but so symptoms is first frontline and then after there are different orthopedic tests that can help us rule in and rule out but the validity of those tests are not the greatest so take